0: Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the eastern border once again. I'm sorry for being so late. I had an emergency case of uh, flu, I guess. My neck was just in terrible condition and I just couldn't speak at all. It was really painful, so I'm a bit late. But fun events have happened recently, so both in Russia and Belarus, and we'll get to historical episodes because I've got a lot of catching up in September to do. Later in September, I'll be in Balkans because of our great sponsors, whom I'll tell you about in a future episode, because I'm going to dedicate a whole episode to them, because, hey, since when do people just randomly invite me to go over on a historical tour throughout the Balkans? It's going to be awesome, and you're going to get all the ads, too, about those guys, because... There are people who are making a uh, historical tour agency stuff, and I hope it's going to go great. So the last episode that you're going to hear from me this month is going to happen in either Sarajevo or uh, somewhere like there, but I intend to go and see where Gavrilo Princip did the things, you know. Yeah, I might have mentioned that in a previous episode, but at any rate, I am better now, much better in fact, and a lot of things have happened both in Russia and in Belarus. For starters, in Belarus, the last opposition uh, candidate that was still in Belarus got uh, sort of, well, they tried to deport her to Ukraine, but instead she jumped out of the car at the last moment, tore up her passport, and now is back. And, well, the protests are kind of wavering and things are not going according to plan, but people are preparing for the long haul there. Sadly, though, they still don't quite get that you can't have a real revolution without breaking a few eggs. However, what's interesting is that, you know, I get uh, interesting emails from sources, and then I follow what other, other journalists say, and sometimes, you know, I have to vet whatever these sources that I have that they send to my email send me. But if you've missed this, I have posted on Facebook and on Twitter, because uh, three of my sources, separate sources, two of them high-ranking FSB officials, stated that on the 22nd of September, Putin will speak in the United Nations in a video conference. He hasn't done so before because, you know, of all of Russia's activities, and that's been confirmed. And also another uh, opposition journalist from Russia who now lives in Slovakia, Alexander Sotnik, spoke about it. And they all tried to tell me that in these uh, discussions and in this video conference that's going to happen, Putin will apparently declare how he's going to soft-addict Belarus. I give it about 70-80% to 80% chance of happening, because some things that I've predicted from my sources have happened, others haven't. But um, I'm quite sure about this. Because, for one, Lukashenko is in a bizarre position, and now he turned away from the West and is now seeking more support from Russia. You know, he's really got to do Putin a good favor to get in his good side and get him Putin to support him. At the same time, it's kind of weird, because Lukashenko's got no legitimacy, and if some annexation deal would be signed, if Lukashenko would sign it, now that would make the whole deal kind of weird. But, well, let's wait until the 22nd of September and see what happens then, because, yeah, like I said, I'm pretty sure this will happen, and there has been confirmation from official sources that, yes, indeed... Putin, who has lately never spoken in the United Nations, and he hasn't been participating in the conferences there, he has confirmed his participation in the 22nd September is one that he has, you know, called himself. So at least that part is true. But we still don't know, because plans might change, and even though there is more than one source and they're separate, still, I give it about 70% chance of happening, but I'm really worried about that, because if it does, we might be in um, a lot of trouble. Now, one thing, though, is that there has been a kind of a process happening, and although Lukashenko has struggled against it, there have been some things going on in Belarus behind the scenes all about this integration process, since, you know, I have uh, definitely spoken about this before. They uh, actually are considered a unity government because Lukashenko himself, he's been ruling for 26 years after all, signed the papers of this unified government thing where in the early 90s they were supposed to integrate uh, together in one country and well as putin wanted to you know extend his terms which he did by basically re-electing himself and doing these constitutional changes there still might be something going on there because a lot of people felt really bad including myself about the fact how putin changed the constitution and surprise surprise in the midst of all of this mess with belarus and the protests there and by the way russia's election's happening but We'll get to that later. First, we have to deal with the Belarus stuff. Putin kind of wants some, some peace, too. And uh, Alexander Lukashenko, on September the 13th, visited Putin on Sochi. They're meeting in person for the first time since mass protests began in Belarus, following a contested presidential election on August the 9th, if you remember. And the meeting is taking place at Putin's Boczarov Rushi summer residence, located in Sochi's Centralny City District. Yeah, they're speaking one-on-one, and there's only the official press release that I can give you, shortened and kind of concise, thanks to my colleagues in Medusa. Sadly, I don't have my own agents in the the meeting room. Well, but that's the official press release, because we really don't know, because this, this conversation was filmed only partially, and obviously there's a lot of speculation behind the scenes that what they have really been talking might be all about all this integration stuff. You know, and uh, not just dealing with the protests and whatever. And here's from Medusa, my buddies, uh, about how, how they met and kind of what they said. Basically, quoting from them, Russia is our elder brother. Putin and Lukashenko, such a meeting in brief. Vladimir Putin. We are in favor of the Belarusians sorting out the situation themselves without any external help. I think that starting work on changing the Belarusian constitution is timely and appropriate. Russia remains committed to all agreements within the framework of the Collective Security Treaty Organization and the Union State. We will fulfill all our obligations. We will give Belarus a $1.5 billion loan and continue our cooperation in the defense sphere. Belarus will be the first country to receive our coronavirus vaccine. Alexander Grigoryevich, I'm glad to see you, welcome to Russia. And Lukashenko, well, this obviously was a conversation, but this is just in brief what they said and what they meant, so... Lukashenko. I'll tell you everything about the situation in Belarus later. However, not everything is as the media says. We have people taking the streets on weekends, but we free part of Minsk for them, so that they can go through. You supported us, and I am grateful. A friend in need, this is a lesson for us, for all post-soviet republics. If someone beyond the western borders is itching for a fight, we are ready at any moment. No one is allowed to rattle their sabers in the border of the Union state. NATO doesn't take us into consideration, it conducts military exercises when it wants. So, we will too. It is important for us not to make the mistakes of the Great Patriotic War, when we try to pacify the enemy. Russia is our elder brother, our states and our people will always be friendly. That's his position now. But if you remember, he arrested a bunch of Russians and claimed Russia was interfering in their elections just before they happened. Also, about uh, Navalny's poisoning, by the way, he's apparently awoken from coma, but we don't have a lot of news about that, so it'll have to wait a bit. Yeah, after Navalny's poisoning, Lukashenko stated to the foreign minister of Russia that he had intercepted a secret conversation between two secret agents, both from CIA, one working in Berlin and other in Warsaw where they call Belarusian president a tough nut to crack. And really a great guy, and it's like these Mike and Nick. Yeah, no one no one believes they're real, and if you watch uh, even the Russian side's reaction to this, they're like, you're just digging a bigger hole for us to fall in. It is pretty terrible, but Lukashenko is truly grasping at straws here. It is quite awful, and basically makes no sense, but hey, Lukashenko's only... The only thing that he truly desires is, after all, to stay in power. I don't believe he has any further goals there. And uh, I think he's, at this point, just seeing Belarusians as an expendable resource. But now I would like to travel back in time, because, you know, modern politics is all cool and fun and games. However, there's an interesting story, because it's nice to contrast and compare. At one point in the past, British spin doctors and Boris Berezovsky... A Russian millionaire tried to help Alexander Lukashenko win over the West. It was a bit crazy, but it's a fun study to see how he's gotten down to where he is now and what he was up to earlier in his, well, reign, I might say. So, about a decade ago, after a temporary falling out with Vladimir Putin, Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko tried to pivot the country to the West. While doing this, he had help from a British PR firm that managed publicity for major clients, including multinational corporations, and entire nations, a, quote, rich benefactor who had key interests in Belarus, end quote, footed the bill. The campaign was a complete failure. The consultants left empty-handed and Lukashenko became an international pariah once again. That's a spoiler alert there. Two of the three main characters in this story have since passed away, and others preferred to forget it altogether. Nonetheless, there are people who have witnessed this campaign and there are previously unpublished evidence that journalists have dug up and um, here I have to give credit to Alexei Kovalev, who uh, did the investigation and he managed to reconstruct the timeline of Lukashenko's failed attempt to win over the West, which is what I'm giving to you. In August 2019, Lord Timothy Bell died in London at the age of 77. The mastermind behind several successful election campaigns for Britain's Conservative Party and its leader, Margaret Thatcher, which earned Bell his noble title, he was also the founder of Bell Pottinger, once one of the most influential PR firms in the world. The company's operations were somewhat unorthodox and focused less on traditional advertising than so-called reputation services. In other words, Bell helped launder the public images of clients in need of a fresh start. Mel Pottinger was open for business to both multinational corporations and entire nations. In 2011, the British newspaper The Independent published a report by undercover journalists from the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, who met with the firm's managers, posing as Uzbekistani state officials. Which is quite interesting, because how do you find people from who are investigative journalists who manage to look like Uzbekistani state officials? Because Uz- Uzbekistan is uh, quite a totalitarian country, but... That's for a different story. In an exchange, secretly recorded on camera, Bell Pottinger executives bragged that they could quickly arrange at a client's request for then-UK Prime Minister David Cameron to telephone the head of the Chinese government with a request to support any particular business project. The PR firm's managers also claimed to have direct access to several other senior British officials. Bell's people didn't stop there either. They offered services to rewrite unflattering Wikipedia articles and even change particular search results on Google. For a million pounds sterling, that's 1.3 million dollars, per year, for example, Bell Pottinger said it could replace Google's top search results for, quote, human rights violations in Uzbekistan, with hyperlinks to glowing reports about the country, written by, well, none else than Herm's own staff. The revelations caused a public scandal in London where many, including David Cameron, woe to fight the encroachment of mudslinging and black PR. Timothy Bell, meanwhile, had no reservations about his clients and argued repeatedly in interviews that everyone deserves a voice in public discussions that affect them. The Belarusian government was among Bell-Pottinger's most illustrious clients. Roughly a decade ago, when a conflict over tariffs on Russian energy products strained the relationship between Alexander Lukashenko and Vladimir Putin to the breaking point, the Belarusian president started thinking seriously about repairing his standing in the West. Well, for obvious reasons, because, you know, they're stuck there in between. Bell Pottinger volunteered its services in this ambitious, quote, reputation management endeavour, end quote. And Timothy Bell personally developed a strategy to rehabilitate Lukashenko. The campaign, like I said, was a failure, and Bell Pottinger ended its work with the Belarusian authorities early. Little has been written about the events that entangled the dictator in Minsk and the spin doctors of London, and most participants are reluctant to discuss this history even now, twelve years later. However, Kovalenko nevertheless managed to reconstruct details of the operation's timeline and identify those who played roles in Lukashenko-Bell partnership. Which is, well, pretty great, because we're gonna go through all of this, obviously. Evidence collected by um, former employees and uh, documents that have been seen by this Kovalenko guy show that Bell Pottinger assigned a whole team of people from various departments to his Belarusian campaign beginning around mid-2008. The company's political desk, for example, was tasked with changing the country's image as quote-unquote Europe's last dictatorship and improving its overwhelmingly negative portrayal in the international media. The firm's political strategists also worked with Belarusian officials to overcome international isolation, lift foreign sanctions, and establish ties to organizations like the International Monetary Fund and World Bank, which could, conceivably, have helped the country manage the loss of trade with Russia. Other departments at Bell Pottinger facilitated press stores in Belarus for Western reporters and interviews with Belarusian state officials. These stores led, obviously, to the publication of articles and supplements in several Western newspapers and magazines about Belarus as a new travel destination. How magical, isn't it? Other staff at Bell Pottinger worked with leading business publications to depict Belarus as more attractive to foreign investors. However, despite all the manpower devoted to improving Belarus's image abroad, the campaign stumbled thanks to frequent misunderstandings on both sides. Lukashenko's administration was, apparently, very convinced it was paying the British PR firm for flattering coverage in the Western media, and officials were outraged whenever harmful subjects like political repressions crept into these reports. A British journalist, who apparently had asked not to be named, told the investigative journalist, quote, I was writing an article back then about these attempts to rebrand the country and the Belarusian IT sector, and Bell Pottinger helped put me in touch with the right people and the officials responsible for this industry. I then met with some of the opposition people. When the article came out, the people from Bell Pottinger were super upset and suggested that I had misled them and written a political article. The journalist states that one employee at the firm described the problem as client dissatisfaction. Quote, the feedback from president's office to your story was quite brutal, they said. I think the Lukashenko administration was under impression that Bell Pottinger could control what the themes I wrote on. Shortly thereafter, Lukashenko's government filed Bell Pottinger. The British journalist who was speaking to this other journalist says he had heard afterward that Minsk was extremely unhappy about the experience, having believed that it was simply buying positive media coverage for Belarus. <laughs> Hey guys, Annette here. I hope you are enjoying our new episode of the Eastern Border. As always, a big thank you to all of our Patreons. The show would not be possible without your help. If you are not a Patreon and would like to become one, head over to the Eastern Border page on patreon.com. Please remember to also follow us on our social media, like Twitter, where we are known as Eastern underscore Border, and on our Facebook page. We also have a Discord server, so if you're interested in that, find the link in the description of this podcast. That's it for now. See you online. This podcast brought to you by russianvoiceovers.eu. Enjoy. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Before the collaboration ended, however, there were other mishaps as well. For example, in November 2008, the Financial Times released a special supplement designed to attract more foreign investment to Belarus. The publication was timed to coincide with the Belarusian Investment Forum, which took place in late November that year. In their articles, there is a copy of this supplement, by the way, which ironically identifies Belarus with the white-red-white flag Lukashenko replaced in 1995, which is now a symbol of Belarusian opposition. Nigel Gold Davies, British ambassador to Belarus from 2008 to 2009, met with Lord Bell and staff at Bell Pottinger and directly witnessed the firm's work to improve the country's image in the West. The company's results did not exactly dazzle him. Quote, My impression at the time was that they did not really know what they were doing. Gold Davies said, Their work had no actual impact on the image of this regime. The pro aim of this work was to improve Koshenko's regime's international image at the time, when he was trying to build relations with the West, but as far as I can tell, they did not succeed at this at all. And major screw-ups like the confusion over the Belarusian flag in the Financial Times left, uh, left Lukashenko's people maniacally furious, the former ambassador recalls. Mark Hollingsworth, the author of a biography about Timothy Bell and a book about Russian oligarchs titled Londongrad from Russia with Cash, told Medusa that this was how Lord Bell typically did business. He would over-compromise and overcharge, and then he would trade on his past relationship with Margaret Thatcher, whom I suspect Lukashenko worshipped. That's how he got all these big contracts with foreign governments. He would negotiate the deal and then try to work out how to do it. Of course, it was almost impossible to get positive coverage about Belarus because it's a nasty dictatorship. What he should have done instead was tell him, look, we can't get you positive coverage, but we can probably limit the damage. But that's the way he operated. Still, the question remains, who paid for the PR? An unnamed third party helped to, quote, facilitate the business between Bell Pottinger and the Belarusian government. Journalists writing about the company's work for Minsk have alluded to this other participant. For example, a feature story published about two years ago in The New Yorker about Lord Bell and his PR firm describes the work in Belarus in the following terms, quote, a partner at Bell-Pottinger told me that the Belarus account was easy to relinquish because Lukashenko's Russian handler had stopped paying his fees. In December 2011, the Bureau of Investigative Journalism reported, quote, Bell-Pottinger's contract with Belarus was terminated in 2009. While it was assumed that Lukashenko, or the government, was paying for the firm's services, Bureau journalists were told during the meeting that it was actually paid by, quote, a rich benefactor who had key interests in Belarus, end quote. Lord Bell, meanwhile, have always denied that any third party was involved in this firm's dealings with the Belarusian government. In an interview with The Independent in 2011, for example, he said, "...all invoices were sent to the Belarus government and all payments were received from the Belarus government." Investigative journalists, however, have learned that the money paid to Bell's PR firm for its work with Belarus actually came from the Russian oligarch Boris Berezovsky. Several people directly involved in the campaign who apparently have asked not to be named, as well as a source personally familiar with Lord Bell, confirmed this. In fact, a few months before his death, even Timothy Bell finally admitted Berezovsky's role. In late 2018, Bell granted an interview to the South African journalist Richard Popluck for The Influence, Diana Nell's documentary film about the Pottinger, which premiered in January 2020 at the Sundance Film Festival in the United States. My fellow journalists uh, obtain a copy of the interview's unpublished transcript. According to Lord Bell, it was Berezovsky who footed the bill for Bell Pottinger's work on Belarus, though the Russian oligarch apparently never paid in full. The two were long-time friends and maintained a close relationship. Bell said the Belarus campaign was worth roughly 3 million pounds sterling, which is about 3.9 million dollars, and that Berezovsky supposedly paid him a monthly fee of about 100,000 pounds, which is 130,000 US dollars, for various PR services. The best-known product of these labors was a photograph of Berezovsky's friend, Alexander Litvinenko, recorded in his London hospital room shortly before he died in 2006 from polonium poisoning. This image, which has now traveled the world and become one of the most notorious symbols of the Putin regime's savagery, was commissioned by the Bell Pottinger Agency. Human rights activist Alexander Goldfarb, who also enjoyed a close relationship with Boris Berezovsky, has explained how the late oligarch's cooperation with Bail Pottinger and the Belarusian authorities worked in practice. The idea for the PR campaign, Goldfarb says, was entirely Berezovsky's. Quote, At some point in 2008, he seized on the idea of tearing away Batkas, well, that is Lukashenko's, ass away from Putin. If you remember, Bachka's relationship with Putin back then was tense. Putin's media beat him up on TV, insulting him and in saying all kinds of nasty things and exposes. And Bachka, at the time, according to Mr. Bedrozovsky, was incensed. Quote, I'm no different from Saakashvili, which was then Georgian president. He's doing exactly the same thing as me, except Saakashvili for some reason is a friend of the West and a champion of democracy, while I'm Europe's last dictator. It's unfair. Saakashvili has locked up more people than I have. That's a supposed quote from Lukashenko, reported to us, obviously. Nigel Gold-Davies, then the UK's ambassador to Belarus, however, has stated that the attempt to pivot westward was very important Lukashenko, who was supposedly ready to invest significant resources into the project. For Berezovsky, however, it was mainly a political scheme to create a kind of a inter-regional alliance of countries that transported Russian oil into Europe. Alexander Goldfarb at least said so. Ukraine would be brought in, too. Together, the members of this alliance would be able to dictate the terms of tariffs and the transit of Russian oil, which Berezovsky allegedly calculated would undermine Vladimir Putin. In all his plotting and planning, Berezovsky never forgot about his own financial interests, either. He had designs on Belarusian state-owned enterprises and hoped to earn money on their privatization. Timothy Bell told Richard Poplyak, quote, Boris got very close to the contract, to get the copper supplied and there was hundreds of millions that he would have, end quote. The main obstacle to rehabilitating Europe's last dictator was, well, no surprise here, Alexander Lukashenko himself. Since 1996, he has been under the the harsh Western sanctions for human rights violations, including the disappearance and murder of opposition members, falsification of multiple elections, and so forth. He really isn't a good guy. These sanctions designated Lukashenko directly, as well as members of his inner circle, and several of the country's key enterprises, such as the belnefti State Concern for Oil and Chemistry, and the Naftan, Petrochemical Complex. At the time, according to Goldfarb, Lukashenko had surrounded himself with advisors who fell into one of two camps, pro-Russian or pro-Western. The pro-Russian party was the KGB. People like Viktor Sheyman, who, by the way, is one of Lukashenko's closest allies, over the years, Sheyman has served as security council secretary, attorney general, chief of the presidential staff and in many other high-ranking roles, both official and, um, well, uh, not so official. He remains sanctioned in the West, even after the EU and the United States briefly lifted most sanctions against Belarus, which also happened roughly a decade ago. Human rights activists and oppositionists say Sheyman is responsible for creating death squads to murder and disappear Lukashenko's adversaries and critics. And, uh, well, I tend to believe those guys. Besides him, there were certain oligarchs with ties to other oligarchs in Russia. Kleptocracy for the win! It was mainly political actors and people from the security services who did not want liberalization because they, obviously, all had something to lose. Viktor Lukashenko, a diplomat and the president's eldest son, and Vladimir McKay, then Lukashenko's chief of staff and now the Belarusian foreign minister, allegedly led the pro-Western faction. Mackay also oversaw Mint's cooperation with Bell Pottinger. Timothy Bell also recalled Mackay's role in the publicity campaign, referring to him as a mysterious chap called Mackey who, quote, "...clearly controlled everything." A source who apparently knew the late Lord Bell, told that he used to say working with such people was like being in a James Bond movie. Vladimir Mackay, obviously, has not responded to any questions submitted by journalists through the Belarusian foreign industry's press service. Berezovsky personally arranged a meeting between Alexander Lukashenko, whom he'd known for many years already, and Timothy Bell, according to Goldfarb and other source close to Bell. Lord Bell later described his new client as, quote, domineering giant of a man who'd killed you as soon as you stepped out of line. Lukashenko instructed his pro Western advisors to work with Bell Pottinger, and Lord Bell allegedly presented them with a detailed plan he designed himself for the Belarusian political system's gradual, gradual, Turn into democracy, modeled on Spain's reforms in the last years of Francisco Franco's reign. Free the country's political prisoners, permit moderate oppositionist activity, and gradually move toward greater liberalism. All by ten small steps to prevent the regime's collapse. Goldfarb says that Bell argued that incremental steps were needed to convince potential Western partners that any reforms were part of a long term plan. Lukashenko approved the operation and gave Berezovsky a heavily guarded mansion outside Minsk, where Bell Pottinger established a temporary HQ to manage the project. Berezovsky's naughty apartment, Goldfarb calls it, a reference to Michael Bulgakov's novel Master and Margarita, which I personally love and highly recommend everyone reads. Berezovsky covered all the office's expense, obviously, Goldfarb sites. In the end, the plan to rehabilitate Belarus president came to nothing and uh, Bell Poninger's brief and happy year, in the words of Ambassador Gold Davies, ended early in mid-2009. As promised ahead of the country's parliamentary elections in September 2008, Lukashenko freed a handful of political prisoners, including Alexander Kazulian, an opposition leader, who ran for president in 2006 and was arrested shortly afterwards. But Lukashenko still didn't dare flirt with even the superficially free voting. Officials refused to register even a single opposition candidate, observers were denied access to vote tabulations, and a spokesperson for the OSCE, which is an observer for general elections worldwide, said the elections fell short of international democratic standards, despite minor procedural improvements. By late 2009, it was clear Lukashenko's Western pivot was doomed. Bell Pottinger's contract with Minsk ended in mutual disappointment, the partnership was terminated early, the firm's representatives left the country, and Timothy Bell moved on to other projects. Boris Berezovsky stayed behind at first, but his time there was also coming to an end. According to Alexander Goldfarb, Berezovsky was in Belarus under Lukashenko's personal security guarantee, despite objections from the British intelligence officials charged with monitoring the high-profile political refugees' safety. London supposedly worried that Russian agents could get to Berezovsky in Minsk. The situation changed dramatically after the 2010 presidential election when officials awarded almost 80% of the vote to Lukashenko and not a single western country recognized the results. Opposition protests ended in mass arrests and attacks against Lukashenko's rivals in the race and their supporters. But nerves finally snapped, Goldfarber members. Afterward, he says, Lukashenko's administration ceased all pursuit of Western integration and asked Berezovsky and associates to leave the country. They said, guys, you should take off, because other people are calling the shots now. In other words, if the president's administration was in charge of everything before, now it was in the hands of the Belarusian KGB, and Moscow was behind the KGB. So we grabbed our stuff and hightailed it out there. And Butchka told Berezovsky, Boris, I'm sorry, I can no longer guarantee your safety. It's a different story here now. So, don't come back. However, Alexander Lukashenko's failure to win over the West was good news for Belarusian oppositionists, who begged the international community in interviews with foreign journalists to resist appeasing the president's regime, warning that it only extends the Belarusian people's agony. According to Timothy Bell, his PR firm not only earned nothing from its campaign in Minsk, but wasn't even reimbursed for its expenses. Three years after the termination of Bell Pottinger's contract in Belarus, following the defeat of his lawsuit in London against fellow oligarch Roman Abramovich, Berezovsky was forced to borrow money to cover millions in legal fees. Some of this money came from Lord Bell, he claimed, and Berezovsky apparently never paid back the last million pounds sterling, almost 1.3 million once again, off the loan. In March 2013, roughly six months after the end of his lawsuit against Abramovich, Berezovsky was found dead in his own home outside London, in Berkshire County. Before long, Bell Pottinger itself folded under the weight of all of its scandals. The fatal blow proved to be the firm's contract with the Gupta family, a powerful group of businessmen in South Africa with ties to then-president Jacob Zuma's ruling political party, and a plot to inflame racial tensions for the Gupta's benefit. After journalists learned about the scheme, Bell Pottinger's board of directors fired Lord Bell from his own company, and the firm's clients all fled. In 2017, Bell Pottinger declared bankruptcy and ceased to exist. Two years later, Timothy Bell died. However, as badly as it flopped, the campaign to render Alexander Lukashenko more likable in the West has left its mark in the photo ops of the Belarusian president stages to this day. A journalist familiar with Bell Pottinger's efforts in Minsk told Kolenkov that it was Lord Bell who urged Lukashenko to cultivate a family man's image in order to make him more relatable. Supposedly, ever since, the president has made a point of appearing in public with his youngest son. Now, this is unverifiable, obviously, but in interviews, Timothy Bell regularly mentioned Lukashenko's appearances with his son, and he praised the Belarusian president for posing with Nikolai while casting his ballot into the 2008 parliamentary elections. And he has posed even more since, since, you know, he appeared in full-body armor after, you know, Protesters got close to his presidential palace. It gets weird. A bit out of hand. But yeah. Lukashenko is a weird man. He's been juggling things and struggling with things, and he's kind of there. I wish he'll go away one day. This was an episode on Lukashenko's weird adventures, mostly concerning him and the West. We'll continue on with our historical episodes, and as soon as I have some confirmed news about, you know, the West, in relation to Navalny or Russia, I'll let you know. However, mind my words, this uh, September 22nd, Let's see what happens then. It's a very important date, because, you know, also kind of checks out if my sources should be trusted or not. At any rate, I hope you enjoyed the episode, and Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to The Western Border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our hosts in the Great Motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void.